As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Right now, we're going to go to Anne-Marie Horton in Japan, and with her is Admiral John Kirby. He's National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications, this for America at the G7 meetings. Thanks, Tom, and that's right. He's on the ground less than four hours, and Admiral Kirby is joining Bloomberg first uh, here as he lands uh, with the president for this really important G7 summit. But, of course, the president is scrapping the remainder of this foreign trip he was supposed to have, Papua New Guinea and Australia. How much do you think that domestic policy concerns are undermining the foreign policy goals of this administration? It's not about undermining our foreign policy goals. I mean, the president has uh, really revitalized. He's really put a lot of energy, particularly into this part of the world. I mean, here we are in Japan for the G7. Um, you know, just a few weeks ago in San Diego, we were standing next to Prime Minister Albanese and, uh, and Prime Minister Sunak uh, to unveil the next phase of the AUKUS agreement. Um, and, of course, he's already had a chance to meet with all the Pacific Island uh, leaders uh, at the White House uh, last year. We'll do another one here uh, uh, in, the, in the near future. So uh, we have invested a lot of time and energy into this particular part of the world. Uh, and today's, uh, today's visit, uh, this G- G7, I think, is, is just further proof of that. But at the same time, the president loves to use these moments like a G7. He reminds the world America is back. He tries to draw parallels from democracy vis-a-vis autocracies, what's going on in terms of Beijing, what happens in Russia. How hard is it for him to deliver that message to other leaders when he was supposed to be the first U.S. president to go to Papua New Guinea? He was supposed to go meet the Quad in Australia. And this is where he wants to spend his time, like you said, in the Asia-Pacific. But the president knows, and so of these leaders, leaders of democratic d- democratic nations, that if you don't if you don't take care of the, the nation's debt, if you allow the United States to default, virtually nothing else matters in terms of what you're trying to do around the world. Uh, you know, I, I heard comments, you know, by analysts that our credibility in the region is suffering because you know we're we're not going on two other stops, uh, but the credibility really suffers if we end up 
you know, being a, a, a debtor nation if that we default. Was, that was the message I got in Nagata from the foreign ministers. If, Will the president if be able to... If we become a deadbeat nation, then our international credibility is standing and suffers. So the president is doing the right thing here. He's Obviously, the G7 is important. A lot of things to discuss while we're here uh, in Japan. Uh, we can reschedule a trip to Australia. We can reschedule a trip to Papua New Guinea. You know what you can't reschedule? You can't reschedule the looming debt ceiling deadline. That is a hard fixed thing, and we've got to make sure we get these negotiations through. Critics will say then the president didn't manage this correctly. He should have been speaking to Speaker McCarthy earlier, so he didn't have to cancel his foreign trip. But do you think the president here in the G7 will be able to say to leaders the U.S. will not default on its debt? Well, the president's optimistic. He said that before we left. He said that he's optimistic that we'll get there. And so that's one of the reasons why we're going home a little bit early so that he can be there to make sure that Congress does its job. But let's go back a little second on the on the talking to Speaker McCarthy. Uh, Not uh, defaulting is a congressional duty. Mm -hmm. It's in the Constitution. Uh, there There didn't need to be negotiations negotiations over the debt. Now, the president is willing to sit down and talk to Speaker McCarthy about the budget and appropriations, and and we'll do that. Uh, But when it comes to uh, raising the debt ceiling, uh, that is something that has been done 78 times uh, under Democratic and Republican administrations without negotiations, uh, without having to, you know, to to have an argument about it. So there's no reason for, I mean, the argument that we we should have talked to, you know, X number of days ago, uh, this should be, this is a a congressional duty there. They should just simply do their job. This is something we're going to be closely watching here from the sidelines of the G7. When it comes to, uh, of course, one of the biggest elephants in the room is going to be China. We know the U.S. wants to go after economic coercion that's coming out of China. Uh, Also, the Papua New Guinea trip was about deterring Beijing. Is there a concern from the White House that potentially, uh, when it comes to, say, Papua New Guinea, that Beijing is trying to do a security agreement like they did with the Solomon Islands? How concerned is it about making sure that countries like that are on board with what the U.S. is doing? Well, the, the trip in Papua New Guinea was not about deterring China. It was about, again, revitalizing, reinvigorating our vast network of alliances and partnerships in this region. A network, by the way, that China can't even close to match. Just can't get there. Uh, five of our seven treaty alliances are in this part of the world, and a lot of people don't realize that. So I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, a network and, of, of partnerships and alliances here that we're trying to, to, to try to bolster. Um, what we, we, and we we will still have uh, discussions and some deliverables uh, with Papua New Guinea. You'll see that, even though we're not making that stop. We'll see those move forward. Uh, I can't speak for what China's doing with each ind- individual Pacific island nation. Uh, they have used a, uh, a mix of intimidation and coercion, um, uh, economic and security-wise, uh, to try to have their way uh, in this part of the world. We are not asking countries to choose between the United States and China. They get to decide what their bilateral relationships look like and who they associate with and, and what that association looks like. What we are doing is trying to show in, in demonstrable way, uh, in ways that the United States is a reliable, stable, credible partner in this part of the world and around the world uh, and to give people alternatives to uh, to the coercion and the intimidation that the, that the, uh, that the Chinese uh, tend to demonstrate. How close are G7 leaders aligned on this point on making sure they are de-risking from China? Most notably I'm thinking of Europe and Emmanuel Macron after his visit where he said that Europe actually has strategic autonomy when it comes to China. China's going to be key on the agenda here uh, in Japan and I think you're going to see the G7 leaders all speak with one voice. 
uh, about the challenges that China poses here in the Indo-Pacific and around the world, but also what some of the opportunities are as the G7 nations are uh, to, to compete, to compete fairly, but to compete uh, well with, with China. Besides broad strokes of words, though, will there be any action vis-a-vis China and the G7. Well, I'm not going to get ahead of the uh, of the discussions. I G, the the G7 leaders will absolutely spend quite a bit of time here, as you would expect they would, certainly here in Japan, talking about the challenges that the PRC represents. They will, I think, I'm, I'm convinced of it, uh, that you'll see at the end of those discussions that they'll all speak with one voice about um, about how we need to treat that particular competition, from a not just from a security perspective, from an economic perspective, from a diplomatic perspective. Admiral John Kirby, thank you so much for joining Bloomberg TV. Good to be with that was, of course, uh, the National Security Council Strategic Communications Director John Kirby, his first interview on the ground. He's been here for under four hours here in Hiroshima, Japan. Spend most of that traveling from the airport, Tom, to an interview with Anne-Marie. MH, great work as always. Looking forward to your coverage with the G7. Ellen Zettner joins us now, quarters on from a transitory uh, economics. And Ellen, in your note today, you are framing out a new job economy. We are at a 250,000 run rate on non-farm payrolls, and you have a stunning observation of a path to 40,000 non-farm payrolls. How close are we to that? Yeah, so I think we can hit that uh, late summer, Tom. And, you know, look, you want to assume that things are linear, which they're never linear. Then if you look at the slowdown that we've had and just project that forward and say, knowing nothing else, let's just assume that continues, you would be down below 100,000 within a couple of prints. So, look, we see a slowing path for job gains here, but we don't see a cliff. And I think that's very important. Claims are still low. <clears throat> Companies are still doing more labor, labor hoarding than they are laying off. Off. We see an mm. employment gap that still needs to get filled. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of support here that, yeah, let's be realistic. Things are slowing, but this is not a cliff that we're headed toward uh, for, for yeah. job gains. This is, Lisa, to me, the conundrum for, for you, me, and John into May, into June, into July is we don't have a clue what the, the is, is Ellen mentions, the linear flows here on labor. No clue. Given the fact that it is slow, how does the Fed respond to a slow burn? Given the fact that they are <clears throat> continuing to say inflation's our preeminent concern and inflation has been sticky. Ellen, can they afford to not hike rates again if we continue to see just a slow grind lower, but not that quickly and inflation still higher? Yeah, so Lisa, I think it's a, it's a good question. Um, inflation is moving uh, in the right direction, but very stubbornly so. And it's not moved down clearly and convincingly as Chair Powell has wanted. But that was not a prerequisite to them stopping hiking, right? That is a prerequisite to when they make adjustments, say, normalizing policy as inflation has come down a lot. So right now we think they're at the point where, yes, they, they it's, it's, it's arguable on the Fed whether they are in restrictive territory, how far are they in restrictive territory, are they close enough? We think that they're close enough, but the arguments that you or the points that you make would suggest that you need to keep that that peak rate uh, there for quite some time. And I think that's the argument that the Fed will lean on, that as inflation slowly comes down, but they're holding rates high, policy actually maintains its restrictive territory and, and in fact, gets even more restrictive 
throughout the year. And I think that's what policymakers ultimately will lean on. Ellen, we were talking about this earlier, and Tom asked the question, do we have a sense of what the new neutral really is? Do we have a sense of what it takes to really take some of the momentum out of an economy that has defied all expectations that were incredibly gloomy heading into the year? What's your view? Do we have a better sense of what that neutral rate is? So I would say that there's, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, very cynical of me to say that neutral does not exist. Um, we're never at neutral. We pass it up. And you know, in hindsight, whether you're at neutral, below neutral, above neutral, but we're always reaching for these sort of fictitious uh, uh, metrics or goals. Um, what the Fed does know or can <clears throat> see is that things are slowing. We think they're going to be very slow in the middle of this, the middle two quarters of this year. Um, and that's an economy with a backdrop of banking pressures, of volatile financial conditions <clears throat> that you might not yeah. want to push it further. But you want to maintain the option to hike again if you need to. And I think that's that's something that we have to consider. There are two sided risks after the pause here. Hey, Ellen, I got to rip up the script. You've done it with me before. Don't panic here. And the answer is we're going to head talk to Ellen Zentner, foreign exchange strategist. Moments ago, euro dollar, solid 110 forever, just breached through a 108 to a weaker euro, 107.99 right now on euro dollar. To me, the great unspoken, along with your idea of NFP down well under 100,000, is resilient to stronger dollar. Dovetail that into your call. Do we get a resilient dollar again with the certitude out there, the consensus of dollar weakness? Look, I think that that um, you know currency movements are very important, and of course, where strategists are, you know, shorter term tactical tactically on the dollar matter a good deal. But th I think there's going to be a realization here that the economy is not collapsing. And in fact, a realization that, yes, we think the Fed has paused here, but there are myriad options for policy after that, right? It's very easy to get inflation down from 7% to 4%. It's very difficult to get inflation down from 4% to 2%. And that might yeah. take more work from the Fed <clears throat> after they pause. So I think it's more of that realization creeping in that 5.1% that, uh, is the peak now, but they may have to move higher at some point. At least to me, this is so important, dovetailing in what Ian Lingen said with what Ellen Zentner said, and the idea of, of the asymmetric call, and this is frankly Hollenhorst as well, do you get an, a, a symmetric call where you get rates up or the Zentner pause, and we don't understand the duration of that pause. And that's where you get the dollar dynamic to come in. Well, and we also have the sense that Europe perhaps has seen the bulk of the gains and perhaps there are signs that the other side of the trade isn't doing as well as, as the resilience of the U.S. economy, Ellen. To that point, we were talking with Jim Bianco of Bianco Research earlier, and one of the big fears about the U.S. was the banking crisis that wasn't or the banking crisis that hasn't yet materialized. And he said it's too soon to say all clear, which a lot of people have been saying. Do you agree? with this idea of a bank walk, of sort of assets just kind of tiptoeing out the door over a longer period of time, more akin to the 1980s SNL crisis that still hasn't fully transpired. Yeah, so I think, look, we've had a shock to the system. That takes time to, to flow through. I don't believe this is a credit crunch where we've just choked off the flow of credit to the economy, but it's clearly a credit cycle. Um, and it's coming uh, also from a drop in loan 
demand. So I agree. We we can't assume that we're we're past you know sort of these evils lurking around the the corner. But I think one of the difficult things here, which is very different from the '80s, is that banks are now having to contend with sentiment. So think of a bank that's had an equity event, right? An equity investor does not want to <clears throat> own that stock, so the stock goes down, and then like clockwork, within days outflows of deposits because you're suspicious of, is that bank where I'm holding my money safe? So it's a, it's a sentiment. And then you've got bank runs that move at the speed of light um, that are electronic now. Uh, and so this is all something that the banking system has to contend with. Um, and I think will continue to weigh uh, on credit availability uh, um, and lending uh, for some time. Ellen, when you talk about the bank walk and later this year, does it become that much more uh, sort of pronounced as a result of the Fed remaining on hold if the economy is also slowing in a commensurate level? So basically, the relative yield that you're getting on those T-bills is that much better. Yeah. So look, I think for banks, it comes down to liquidity. And <laughs> You know, you can look at it one way and say, well, banks are accessing um, the the uh, facility that the Fed has put in place or they might be accessing uh, the discount window. But ultimately, you the other side is the way I would look at it is that's a good thing. Banks need liquidity and they're accessing it. Um, and so that alone uh, will help banks work through this. Alan, I want one final question. There's a guy named Gorman. I think his first name is James Gorman. And he said a number of months ago something like. And he said it with that accent he's got, that, you know, that Australian thing going. He said, with some fury, if they can eat in a restaurant in Soho, they can come to work. I'm fascinated with what you see nationwide on back to work. It's a big debate in Manhattan, but are we going to go back to work in America? So we are going back to work. I think when I've traveled around the country, I find a, a good deal of regional differences in terms of people that are back to work full-time, almost full-time. Look, why does this need to be a worry? I mean, yes, office space for commercial real estate <clears throat> is working through problems, resizing. It's more of a, a tier B and tier C right. market than a tier A problem. <clears throat> but still, um, we don't have to be in five days a week. That's not what new work okay. arrangements need to look like. But we do need to connect. Seeing a restaurant in Soho, Soho. we'll try to ignore Mr. Gorman uh, if we can. Ellen Zentner with Morgan Stanley working for the James uh, Gorman. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. We found a bull. 
She joins us around the table. Barbara Reinhardt, the Head of Asset Allocation at Voya Investment Management. Barbara, good morning. Good morning. You're bullish. Why? Well, look, we think there are a couple of things that are likely to go right. Inflation is still going in the right direction. Uh, yields are very supportive, but have come off of their highs. That gives the P.E. multiple for the S&P 500 a little bit of wind at its back. Uh, but mostly we think that it's going to be the economic data is, is slowing enough that the Fed is able to take their foot off of the brakes and maybe take a break or a pause in their hiking cycle. And that is a very good tailwind for the equity market. At this point, you've been uh, perhaps painfully long the U.S. over the rest of the world. And this has been sort of a contrarian trade as everyone piled into Europe and the rest of the world. That's starting to shift around the margins, at least this week. What gives you confidence that it has staying power and that you'll basically be able to say, I was right all along. It just took a little bit. We never say that, Lisa. (laughs) But nonetheless, um, look, we think that the U.S. has some some really good qualities to it, right? So the Federal Reserve was one of the first central banks to start raising interest rates. Inflation in the U.S. peaked a number of months ago. It's on the right trajectory and going in the right direction, if not fast enough for all market participants. But in Europe, think about this. A lot of bad news had been in the price in the fourth quarter of last year. A lot of things didn't happen. So not necessarily incrementally good news, but the disaster scenario didn't happen. You need things to go in the right direction for Europe to continue to work. A lot of hedge, a lot of fund managers are indeed putting assets out there. We're seeing um, asset allocators start to put money overseas. That's generally when the data has to really start breaking your way. If you think the U.S. has an inflation problem, Europe has a much bigger one and a much stickier one, and their central bank is much further behind the curve than the U.S. is. So at the margin, we think that the U.S. is likely to outpace the rest of the world. The U.S. top place, let's be blunt, more than anyone we talk to, Voya is America first. How does a dollar fold into that? I mean, to me, the big surprise here, no one is looking for a resilient or strong dollar. John, DXY, a 103 level, BBDXY, 1236, all of a sudden resilient dollars. Is that part of the America first story? Well, look, you don't necessarily need the currency going in your direction in order for the U.S. to do well. I think part of it also is the visibility that you have on the U.S. is actually quite good. The U.S. consumer is holding in their quite well, even in the face of job openings coming down in some rebalancing right. in the labor market. So the U.S. just has more strength to it. And we think that's at the margin a relatively good thing. So you're in a meeting with retailer, high net worth individuals with Voya, and they go, we own 80, 85% of our portfolios Apple. What else do we do? I mean, <laughs> well, come on. We all own Apple. I know. It's an outrage. What do we do after Apple? Well, the good news is when you saw some like relatively good news on the debt ceiling yesterday, you saw some of those other parts of the market that haven't done relatively well start to pick up. So mid caps, small caps, even real estate investment trust yesterday did a bit better. Exxon is a mid cap in case you're taking notes, John. <laughs> but I would say the thing is, if you can see some broadening of the leadership, uh, that is a relatively good thing. But you've had narrow, narrow leadership across the entire globe, right? So what's been doing well over the past five months has been U.S. tech and and European luxury goods, right? So seeing a broadening out of the strength of the market is a good sign. Just to be clear, do you expect that to continue, that broadening out? We would certainly hope so. The inflation data in the U.S. we think is likely to go our way. And we also see that potentially getting through this debt ceiling problem is good. I would note, if the U.S. economy tends to be too strong, or if the inflation data starts to break higher, that goes right in the face of of how we're positioned in our portfolios. But we think at least for the next couple of months, things are going to go our way. Just to be super, super clear and specific here, mm-hmm. we know the most crowded trades, at least indicated by the Bank of America Fund Manager Survey, right. are long tech, short banks. Right. Are you leaning in the other direction then? 
Look, I think you've got to be a real brave, real brave person to buy the banks at this point. But remember, we're top down global, so I'm not making sector decisions. Okay. I'm positioning more in terms of countries and in terms of style tilts. So uh, but we think that the U.S. is probably the strongest place to be. I mean, you know, at this point, thinking about the rest of the world, the only other place that I would probably really think about allocating to might be parts of Japan because it looks like it's so cheap and it has a, a big benefit to it uh, from the currency at this point. But for us, the U.S. is probably the place to be. Just to tie this conversation back to what we were speaking about with Max Kettner of HS HSBC earlier, mm -hmm. he was saying it's not really a sector kind of market. It's an everything on or everything off kind of market. This is why asset allocators are tearing their hair out right now. Are you finding that it's the same thing, but it's country specific, everything on in one country or one region, everything off in that region? Yeah, I think it's more regional probably than than specific countries, right? Um, these markets can be very thin. When you have narrow leadership, you have to be on the right side of pretty much everything. It's very difficult to go into risk on and risk off positions. You have to really pick where you see the best visibility. And the best visibility for, for our part is in the U.S. Right now, is big tech sort of a, necess a necessary play within that, that basically you have to kind of ride the big tech wave and that's basically what's going to distinguish the U.S. from the rest of the world? Well, we think that big tech actually did a couple of things right also. Remember last year, all of the layoff headlines were at, in big tech firms, right? So big tech took a very big uh, view in terms of trying to right-size some of their cost measurements for the difficult investment environment that specifically that segment of the market was feeling last year. So they took some of their medicine early, and then, they, of course, they have the benefit of this whole AI big boom that's going on right now. Um, so look, could tech take a breather? Absolutely. But I would say that probably the best part of it is the dynamics for them are probably a bit stronger than the rest of it because they took their medicine last year. I'm looking at a small cap, United Health Group, and mm -hmm. everybody keeps talking medicine, medicine, medical, health, whatever the sector categories are. Mm -hmm. Is that part of an American play? Look, small caps have really been beaten down. Post-SVB, small caps have really taken it on the chin. Uh, you probably need to get some of these recession fears off of the table in order right. to go very long small caps. What about caps. medical across small, mid, and large cap as well? Again, I can't talk to sectors. We don't invest that way in our funds. How'd she get on set? <laughs> you can't talk sectors. I can't. I really we do, we invest more so in terms of top-down global macro. Look, I do think that there are. I can't talk United. I can talk healthcare. I can talk utilities. I can talk uh, technology. I don't want you to talk United, but talk to me about medicine, healthcare. Yeah. We're all getting older. Is this, we is are. Is this angle going to work? Well, look, look at the. Police is not, but you know. Look at the cover of the Financial Times. <clears throat> it was all this morning about you know that um, you have to right size pensions, public pensions, because you have an aging population. If it's not healthcare, I don't know where it is. There we go. I think that answered your question. It took like four questions to get you it out of her. Sorry. You know, I don't know. Baba, you're great. Give her a time mimosa. We'll get Baba you a tough there. crowd this morning. A voyeur investment <laughs> management. To give us perspective here, working with Dana Telsey always is Joseph Feldman, just really quite good. Terse, terse reports. What did you do? I mean, let's get out front of your research. I need to front run you and Dana this morning. Do you change your view on Walmart with this optimism we're getting in the last hour? I don't think so. I think you want to stick with Walmart here, especially in the environment we're, we're in at the moment. And, you know, we're hearing from so many of the retailers that there's a lot more concern about mm -hmm. the second quarter, concern about the economy, what it's going to look like in the second half.
And in tougher right. times, Walmart t- tends to shine. Dana was legendary at Bergdorf Goodman as a kid. She was like 12 years old. And if somebody was caught shoplifting, they had to babysit Dana, you know, for, for years. <laughs> Joe Feldman on Shrink, on the theft we saw with Target yesterday. Is yeah. there Shrink at Walmart? Yeah, there's absolutely shrink happening at Walmart. Uh, they haven't called it out quite the same way Target has, but you know, all the retailers are are, dis, are dealing with the shrink issue, the theft, organized crime. It's a big deal, and I think it's a big part of the the equation for a lot of the retailers. Uh, it's a big number, maybe less as a percentage of the overall total sales for Walmart, but the dollar amount might be as high, or if not higher. I would think at a Walmart relative to Target. And it's not just these two. Again, this is a cross retail and the retailers really need to work with local authorities to find ways to, to try to stop this because the current way to do it is you have to lock down a lot of product in the stores and it makes it for not the great shopping experience for the consumer. It really feels uncomfortable for those that are, are not there for theft. They just want to buy stuff. Putting that aside and giving the fact that this is going to be a a policy consideration going forward, there is a question about what period we're in. You said these times that we're in, what times are we in? Are they at one of strength with the consumer having spending power or not? So it's it's been very confusing. We're getting lots of mixed signals. We believe the consumer is a bit stronger than most, you know, believe may other believe otherwise believe. The reason I say that is. You're seeing spending on consumables, household essentials, basic items. People are keeping you know, their food on the table and keeping the house running. At the same time, you're continuing to see uh, increases in sales at, at dining out, entertainment, uh, going to sporting events, travel. All of those you know, service-oriented economy is still actually doing fairly well. I do think we're going to see spending slow a bit broadly speaking, but those pockets of the economy right now would sort of indicate that that the consumer still has some money to spend. Now, I, I agree, they're not spending on discretionary goods, and we don't expect that to pick up much this year. I think you're going to see more of the same. Where And then you could start to, to parse it out by income level, where the higher income people are the ones that are really spending on the services. The low to middle income, they're the ones just focused on getting food on the table. Keeping the household afloat. In Walmart's earnings, it's kind of a a microcosm of the broader story on a lot of fronts. You've got people who are downshifting perhaps to grocery, and grocery uh, certainly does account for a significant amount of volume. But the profit really comes from the other areas, and you can see that the margin is expanding there like it is at other companies as well. In other words, the input prices that they experience, they can pass that along and then some, and consumers will keep buying and buying more than expected. How long can this last that they actually just can increase their profit margins and just expect the consumer will eat the uh, price increase? I think what we're seeing, a lot of the profit margin increase from Walmart and some of the others, it, it actually relates to greater efficiencies and getting better leverage. And if you look at comparisons from a year ago, supply chain costs were through the roof. Those have come down pretty significantly. So that is providing some cushion. I think you know, as far as food and consumables and basics go, Walmart wow. especially passes things through pretty quickly. So as prices have been moderating, which we're hearing inflation is starting right. to moderate on that side, they're passing that through. Joe, CFA 101, you got a single yeah. digit nominal GDP grower. They're bringing pennies down to the bottom line. And I'm enjoying, enjoying a forward view on Walmart of a 24 multiple. 
you got to be kidding me. How do you <laughs> really, with great respect, how do you and Dana adapt to a 24 multiple on the biggest aircraft carrier in the water going through the water at four knots? Well, it's a big aircraft carrier that's becoming sleeker. Uh, they're doing more with uh, higher margin businesses, advertising, um, online. They're transforming. They're, they're, they're kind of meeting in the middle with Amazon, if you think about it. Think about the valuation that Amazon trades at. You know, Walmart has gotten a lot more efficient with their online business. They've grown that. They have a marketplace very much like Amazon, which is highly profitable. Um, they've got more third-party sellers coming on. So there's a lot that Walmart's doing to kind of borrow from the Amazon playbook that's, that would argue that they are becoming a more dominant and more important retailer, building their ecosystem in more profitable ways, and therefore require or would warrant, maybe not require, but warrant a higher valuation. Interesting. Joe, we've got to leave it there. Thank you, sir. Joe Foudman there at Towsie Advisory Group. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. does give me information is James Bianco, president and founder of Bianco Research, who does a really elegic uh, effort here on economics and dovetailing it into the state we're in. And then, as John mentioned, there's the debt and the deficit. I read Heil Bronner Bernstein years ago, just the Bible on all the sum of our fears here. How afeard are you of the debt debate? I'm probably more aligned with Wall Street. I mean, there's two, there's two types of people when you talk about the debt uh, debate. There's those, uh, to put it in Bloomberg terms, that Anne-Marie Horton would interview that would tell you there's a 40 or 50% chance that we're going to default. And then there's the Wall Street types that'll tell you that there's a 3 or 4% chance that we're going to default. And I'm probably in the 3 or 4% chance that we're actually going to see a default. We're going to see a lot of political theater. And I think what the markets heard from Speaker McCarthy the other day was that the president has appointed somebody to negotiate with him. So that means we're going to get a deal. And I think that a deal is largely expected in the market. And if there was not a deal, that would be the surprise. So there's a market call to make as well in that. What is your market call around this story? Um, You mean around the debt ceiling? Well, if you believe it's not priced, then you also believe you acknowledge to some degree there is some risk here. There is risk. Where do you think that risk is? I think, well, I think that risk is really in the short-term bill market. Uh, And I think that that risk is potentially in the banking system. Remember that treasury bills, treasury securities are used as reserves. That's a fancy way of saying they're another form of money is what they are. 
And if we were to default on those, we would throw the banking system into complete chaos because their reserves that they use would no longer be worth anything, at least for the day or two or three or however long we didn't pay them. That's the risk that you would face if we were to have a default. And there is a risk out there right now that um, if, this, if this negotiation falls apart, I don't think it will, but that is your risk. So you've got to, to use a fancy word, an asymmetric risk. If there's a deal, there's going to be very little movement in the market. If there isn't a deal, we're going to have to reprice the markets then. Where there's a problem, the Fed has a solution, typically. Do they have a solution for that? I don't think they do, nor do I think they should. This is a political issue, is what this is. Uh, we elected congressmen and senators to represent us. And if they're in their infinite wisdom decide to represent us by defaulting on this debt, we'll have to figure to that out. Point, though, if that becomes a market functioning issue, doesn't the Fed have a role to play? It does to some extent, but you also have to be careful that you're not undoing the will of Congress. Where, where does one end the other? That's why I think that this will get resolved, because it is all on Congress if this happens, if we have a debt default. It is not on the Fed for mitigating it. What's the next crisis then? If this gets off the crisis, off the table, then what do people focus on next? Well, I think we go back to focusing on the banking crisis. And I think we go back to focusing on, you know, go back to the senior loan officer survey. Do we see lending, you know, tighten up and continue to tighten up? And do we see problems then metastasize because lending is going to continue to tighten? And then I think the other one would probably be if, you know, going with my forecast, do we see a bottom in inflation this summer? And then does the Fed come up short of their target and does all the talk of cuts in the funds rate by the end of the year kind of go away? Do you feel like people are exhausted by the pessimism that they've heard the sky is falling for so long and it hasn't happened that they're basically tuning it out and basically saying, yeah, 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 you've been wrong, which is basically <laughs> uh, some of the messaging <laughs> that I keep hearing. How much is that really kind of prevailing? Oh, I think it's it's prevailing quite a bit. I mean, you know, it goes all the way back to the pandemic when we had the ultimate pessimism. Uh, we were all going to die. That was what we had for the pandemic. And then we, we all didn't die. So and then we've kind of recovered I mean, it's yellow. Fr from from that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of frustration. I'll go back to what I said earlier. The markets haven't done anything. So no one is right. No one is wrong. You know, the, the optimists have, are still waiting for the breakout and the pessimists are still waiting for the breakdown. And the, this just continues and the frustration continues to build. If there is a no debt ceiling default, right, and we do have that sense by the next Fed meeting, and we don't really have a sense of ongoing stress that's really uh, coming to a head in the banking system, how much of a disruptive force would the Fed be if they actually did hike rates at the June meeting? Oh, I think they would be a hugely disruptive force um, if, they, if they continued to hike rates. They would exacerbate the bank walk. I mean, this is becoming the national pastime right now. Is pull out your phone and brag about your money market fund. It's no longer about a meme stock anymore. <laughs> and that would just exacerbate that. And at higher rates will then definitely filter through in the economy, I'm, count me for one that still thinks that rates matter and that if the Fed wants to rate, I know that's a, a wild <clears throat> thought. Yeah. yeah, but if the Fed wants to raise rates, it's going to really hurt the economy. Brent, was anybody modeling a 6% money market fund? I mean, imagine well, that. We actually, I think Lindsay Piegza was talking about a 6% yeah. Fed funds rate still on the table, even though everyone's taken that off. And then Triple so. over cash. Uh, I, I, thank you. <laughs> uh, it, it's worked out well. We had a 2 and 20 payout last year. This year, I don't think we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Ralph Ankenpour, you're a CMT. You and yep. I adore Ralph Ankenpour. I know Ralph. Yep. He was on the show, and Ralph said October was the SPX bear market low. 
we're up 14% SPX off the Ancompora low. That, to me, is stunning. Nobody's talking about this. And, and a lot of people missed this lift off this low, didn't they? Yes. So we've, we're six months <clears throat> and 14% off the low. But I would also say, if you wanted to back up and look at the January high, we've only retraced half Stay the losses. Stay with me on my story here. Don't give me this technical <laughs> analysis stuff. Go with the story. Yeah. Uh, you know, the market has lifted off the low. But what I'm saying is it's still well away from the highs, and it's been meandering sideways. So, I, I, you know, I see a market without a conclusion right now in terms of the sideways. It's waiting to see what comes next. Remember the first time you read John Maggie? This is a textbook, John, written in 1940-something. You read Maggie, and it's support and, support and resistance. And the bottom line, John, is you can make up any story you want. So I got a story. I'm coming from the October low, and the smart guy over here is going, no, you got to bring it back further, and it's not that glorious of a story. Technical That's analysis of stock trends by John Maggie. So My favorite story point. right now, allow me to share it with you. I can get behind this bill in Washington, D.C., the No Pay for Congress During Default or Shutdown Act. <laughs> you like that? Doesn't that sound great? Awesome. <coughs> Who's the sponsor? The sponsor, representatives Abigail Spanberg, a Democrat, Virginia, Brian Fitzpatrick, Republican, Pennsylvania. Love that. Love that. So this is what NBC is saying. A bipartisan bill set to be unveiled today would block members of Congress from getting paid if the US enters debt default or if the government shuts down. I think we're all on board, which means one thing. If we're all on board, they certainly aren't down in Congress, are they? (laughs) This is revenge of the middle. This is revenge of the centrists, right? It's revenge of the, guys, what are we doing here trying to gain political points and holding the US's uh, future in hand? Can you get behind that, Jim? Oh, of course I can get behind that. I think we should go with when we hit the debt ceiling and retroactively stop paying them since January. I've said all along, just pay them in T-bills. (laughs) <laughs> just pay them in T-bills. Pay them in January 1st T-bills, in January yes. 8th T-bills. Who did you go. want to do that? I wanted, leaders? In, in the Eurozone debt crisis, they should have, they should have been paid in, in BTPs and in Greek debt. Pay the German politicians <clears throat> in, in Greek, Greek debt. debt. <laughs> <laughs> that would have got the, things sorted quickly. The most important message is Spanberger's ex-CIA, and she won her primary 50 to 48%. Yep. She's in the middle. And that's what the middle of America's thinking. Hey, Jim, this was great. Love it. Jim Bianca of Bianca Research. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.